Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Captain Michael Shearer from the Akron Police Department, the Narcotics Division. Captain Shearer, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. So you've spent 25 years on the force now? Yes. Right? That's correct. In various roles. You've been captain now since? About 11 years. So I think I was promoted somewhere around 2005, I believe. So Akron has experienced a tragic spike in heroin overdoses this summer. First responder calls went from two a day to 11 in July. So how's the department dealt with this? Well, Greg, I can tell you this much. It's uh, The short answer is overwhelming. But to give you an idea of overwhelming, um, you got to look at it from, from a few different perspectives or angles. So when I say overwhelming, you have officers that are in patrol cars that answer calls for service all day long. Well, now they have the demand of responding to those types of um, calls that is now increased because now they're going to the overdose calls. So now the demand is put on them even more to respond to additional calls. So you have that putting stress and overwhelming the patrol division. You have detectives in our detective bureau that investigate crimes. Well, some of the crimes that they investigate are deaths or suspicious deaths. So when you have these overdose calls, when you show up on scene, the patrol officers and even the EMS guys, um, the firefighters, they don't really know if the person's going to make it. So you have detectives now coming out to start an investigation. So it's taking them away from additional cases that they're working on. So now they're overwhelmed with this process as well. And then if we actually have a death that results, because we've had a lot of deaths from this, um, the guys uh, have a couple of detectives that all they do is investigate overdose deaths. They are completely overwhelmed. Their workload is through the roof right now. So it has been very, very overwhelming. And it just doesn't impact just the police department. It impacts the fire department. They have more calls for service as well. It impacts um, the treatment centers. It impacts the entire community. Absolutely, it does. So it's very overwhelming. So it's kind of an exponential effect there, yes. the impact as the number of overdoses goes up, the resource, the demands on resources really climbs just about exponentially. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So speaking of overdoses, um, there's kind of a trend to not arrest associated with overdosing. 
And um, can you comment on that? Because I think that's really not the black and white issue that maybe some people think that it is. Um, it's it's not a very black and white issue. There's uh, there's some gray areas. There's always some gray areas in law, law enforcement because there's um, certain things where you have discretion. You know, to give you a simple example, if I stop you for running a red light, I'm not required to give you a ticket. I can give you a ticket or I can give you a warning. So there's some discretion. Or I could give you a warning ticket. Um, so when it comes to uh, this problem with, uh, with um, the drug abusers or addicts, that, yeah, sometimes they get arrested, sometimes they don't get arrested. And when you, when you look at that, it could be anything from a little bit of the officer's discretion, if it's just a uh, misdemeanor drug paraphernalia type issues, that it's kind of like, no, we're, we're not going to arrest you for that. The other aspect of it is sometimes you are arrested because, one, it is illegal. There's a law written for it. It is absolutely legal. I'm in law enforcement. We enforce laws. But the other side of that coin is it also forces some people to get treatment, to get into a program, get into drug court, start them down a path of hopeful full-time recovery. Um, and there are people who have, who, have, who are recovering addicts that have said that that was the best thing that ever happened to them was being arrested. That was, that was their bottom rung of their ladder. That's where they hit bottom and realized they needed something else in their life and they needed to make a change. Now, the other side of, of that, too, is sometimes people are arrested because we really need them to actually work and help the police department. And there's the opportunity for them to work and not necessarily erase their charges, but get them into a drug court program as well. And it's, uh, it's very beneficial to the police department. Because what our real goal is, we really don't want to arrest um, the, the drug abuser, the, the, the addict. We really want to go after the person who is supplying the drugs, the actual drug trafficker. That's really who we want. And that's the ultimate goal. So that's how you've done it historically. Now this week, you've got a little change, a game changer, some might say, with the Good Samaritan Law going into effect, granting uh, the 13th of uh, September, yep. 2016, and it grants immunity for those people calling 911, as well as the overdose person, um, from low-level drug possession, as well as paraphernalia. So how's that going to change your mode of operation moving forward? Um, I don't think it will change it that that much. It will change it a little bit. And uh, can I just ex expound a little bit on explaining how the Good Samaritan Law works? And my understanding of it, I could be a little bit incorrect, and I hope I'm not speaking incorrectly because this is going in, just went into effect yesterday. Mm -hmm. But here's how the Good Samaritan Law works. Um, if there's an individual that calls for medical attention for themselves or somebody who has overdosed, and the only thing that is found there is some drug paraphernalia or a small amount of heroin or fentanyl, and it would only result in what would be considered a felony five possession, those people are not charged at this point. No one is. Now, that evidence is still collected, and it's tagged, and it's considered evidence. What happens is those individuals would be written, um, and it's not, it's not like a tra traditional summons. A summons is actually a piece of paper making a report uh, to court because you've been charged with a crime. So you don't actually get physically arrested, but you still are charged with a crime. They're filling, we're filling out a form now, and it's, uh, I can't remember the exact title of it, but it's an immunity form, for lack of a better term. It's an immunity form. So we fill this out for the individual, and basically what, what transpires there is they're giving a court date for 30 days out from the incident that happened. And basically what it's doing is it's providing that person with 30 days to go and get a screening process done 
and try to get into a program or in line for a program for treatment. And if they're able to do that and they come to the court appearance and say, look, I am trying, I am trying to, to get help, then they're not charged. The evidence is destroyed. It's done. That's over with. The caveat to that is if you're on probation or parole, you don't get immunity. If you've already had immunity twice, you don't get it a third or fourth or a fifth time. So it changes it a little bit. And I think what this Good Samaritan law is really out there trying to provide is to take away a little bit of the fear element of if I call the police because my buddy just uh, overdosed or my, my brother or my sister or my mom, or that it takes away the fear of I'm going to be arrested because you're not. That's what the Good Samaritan law has done. And it also is out there to help people um, steer them more towards the treatment side of things. So I think, th I think there's some good to it. I absolutely do. But I don't think it's really going to change what we do drastically. It's not, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. That's not what the Good Samaritan law is, is, is at all. That's not it. But hopefully what it will do is motivate many, many people to hang around and make that call, realizing oh, that they'll have immunity. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Like I said, I think there's a good, good legitimate reason for it. Absolutely. Okay. be interesting to see what happens as this unfolds yes. in the coming months. On September 9th, the mayor of Cincinnati announced the formation of a quick response team that would include police, emergency, and medical personnel, and an opiate uh, case manager to visit recent overdose victims offering help. Has the department considered implementing a similar program in Akron? The simple answer to that is not yet. Um, I only recently found out about uh, the program with Cincinnati, and um, it sounds like they're adopting it from uh, a little uh, city north of them called Colerain. Well, I only found out about that from the conversation I had with you on the phone about a week ago. So um, I think it's very interesting. I know that with um, adopting programs like that, there's a lot of resources that uh, need to for those type of programs, and that involves real dollars, uh, personnel, equipment. So um, we're just at a point now with me just finding out about it that I'm actually starting to, to look into it and research it a little bit. But no, we're, we're not at that point yet not in the police department. Sure. Well, that's in encouraging, certainly, that uh, you're going to look into oh, absolutely. it. That's great news. And, and especially with um, some of the results Colerain has had. I mean, 35% reduction in overdoses, that's... That's something to take a look at. And even though they're a much smaller city than, than Akron is, so it's not a true fair comparison, but Cincinnati is even a larger city than Akron is. I'll be very, very interested to see how, how well that program works for them. Yeah, that'll, that yeah. will be interesting. Um, so at Colerain, also 80% of the doors they knock on result in people going into treatment. 80%. That's a huge number. That is a huge I, number. I, I was blown away by that. And you know, and I and I haven't had a time to actually look into it further. But with eighty percent going into treatment, I wonder what type of facilities they have. And when you attach eighty percent, I'm looking at it from an Akron perspective, and those are hundreds of people. I wonder what the actual numbers of people are, as opposed to the eighty percent. And eighty percent is a good number. I don't want to take away from that because, in my opinion, if it's ten percent, you're getting people treatment there. You're, you're saving somebody or at least putting them on the right path to help save them. Sure. But uh, you know, I'm really curious as to what kind of bed space that the, the, did they have to increase the bed space of facilities around the area to, to try to, to meet that need or that demand. So I'm very interested in that. Yeah, they had to get very creative. And the unique thing about their program was as they were putting it together, Dan told me that they had so many people involved 
you know, on the treatment side and, and so many different aspects of this involved, that there was things that kind of uh, resources that came out of the woodwork that they wouldn't otherwise have had at their disposal. So, well, that was, and I'm, I'm sure that's helped make the program for them even more successful. Yeah. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about Perry, the Police Assisted Addiction and Recovery Initiative that was established in 2015 in Massachusetts. Under the program, drug addicts who ask the police department for help are taken immediately to the hospital and placed in a recovery program. No arrests, no jail. So where does the Akron PD stand on Perry? Um, where we currently stand is I know that there have been discussions with uh, inside the city administration with members of the ADM board, with uh, members or representatives from Perry and the police department. Um, I believe they've had at least two, possibly three uh, discussions about that. So um, I think that we're still very open to that idea. I think that it, it clearly uh, appears to have been working in other communities. So um, that's the offer still out there on the table. Good. And that's where we're at with that. Excellent. Glad to hear it. You know, with <clears throat> this explosion of overdoses that we've had, and, and now with getting, it's laced with, the heroin is laced with fentanyl and then carfentanyl, you have to use an incredible amount of Narcan to bring these people back. Absolutely. So how are we doing with that, with distribution of Narcan and Narcan supplies to all of the, the patrols as well as EMS and the community? Well, I know that, um, I can't speak for the fire department. I know that a large portion of the Narcan used in the city of Akron is through uh, EMS, uh, Akron Fire Department. Uh, they respond and roll on every one of the calls of overdoses, just like the police department does. Um, most of the time they show up before us. But I know that just recently, and I don't know the exact date, I'm going to say three weeks ago, maybe as long as a month ago, but three weeks ago, um, we started carrying Narcan in the cruisers that we got from the health department. Um, I think to date, the Akron Police Department has used like 10, maybe 13 uh, uh, on different incidents have used uh, Narcan. So 10 to 13 lives saved. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the problem I guess you really run into is some of this fentanyl, especially car fentanyl, is so strong that um, I really don't know how to answer the long-term effect that that's going to have on the Narcan supply or the naloxone supply that the, that EMS uses, that the fire departments use. And Akron uh, PD is a little bit of a, a latecomer to that process. Other smaller communities that don't have um, EMS readily at hand, because I think that was the big issue for the Akron Police Department because of the cost involved in some of the Narcans and things like that, that if EMS is already rolling and they're there before us or shortly thereafter us, then why are we going to spend additional costs and resources on something that's already being provided? So I think we've been kind of fortunate in the city um, because of the way EMS and the fire department rolls. But your smaller communities, some of your smaller police departments that don't have that luxury have uh, went to Narcan probably six, seven months ago. So Akron Police Department is just now carrying it. Hmm. Okay. So what else should our listeners know about the Akron PD's plans to uh, address the opioid epidemic in the community? Well, we do have quite a few discussions about this. I can tell you that coming from a, a narcotics point of view, um, the overall goal is we we really want to um, go after the drug traffickers. I mean, that's that's our goal. Um, and in Akron, we're pretty fortunate. Um, even though we have Akron Narcotics, we work very closely with the Summit County Drug Unit, which is made up of jurisdictions throughout the county. 
Um, we actually operate out of the same building, same office space with them, work side by side with them. We also work very closely with the DEA and the FBI, and it's all in an effort to really go after those drug organizations and really work at uh, dismantling them or disrupting them. And what I mean by that is either completely take an organization down, and, and I'm sure you've seen the press releases sometimes that we have where you know we'll have an investigation that is ran for uh, a year, year and a half, and we arrest 40 different drug traffickers, and we've completely um, dismantled that drug organization. So uh, I think we're still very committed to that. I think we'll continue to be very committed to that. Um, some of the other things that we're, we're looking at, um, I've had some discussions with, uh, with the chief and the deputy chiefs very recently um, about uh, getting a small group of officers because I think where we're really, because of the demand on our resources, I think where we're really missing um, a little bit of a, a gap or where we have a little bit of a leak is we have so many overdoses in the city. We have so many deaths that are associated with them. So we would spend a lot of resources focused on the death part of it and investigating, trying to go after the traffickers. Then we're missing a little bit on the follow-up of the people who are surviving from an overdose. Um, and even though I still really want to go after the trafficker end of that, I'd like to have a few more resources dedicated, even if it's on a short-term basis, to really go out and try to interview at the time that uh, someone overdoses and really see, okay, where did you get, who supplied you with this, and try to build a little bit of a case and intel to see how it fits into the rest of, of what's going on in the city and whether or not an overdose survivor that, that survives over on the south side of the city is it tied to uh, a death that we had on the north side of the city so that we can really try to focus our resources in the best way that we can. Interesting. So what else would you like to share with our listeners about the epidemic? Well, I think I think the most important message that we can really get out is this isn't just a a problem or an issue for the Akron Police Department um, or the Akron Fire Department or the hospitals or the medical examiner's office. Um, it affects the entire community, and it just doesn't affect our community. It's Akron is not unique. You can look at any city, some small, some large. This is facing every state. Every state in our country has issues with this. This is, this is on a scale that is unbelievable. So when you look at this, I try to look at it from a point of view of, you know, I hear people make statements that you can't arrest your way out of this. Treatment doesn't always work. Um, so if we've been arresting people and we've been putting people into treatment and we're not getting the results we see, I don't think we should abandon those paths but if we're not getting the results we want or expect, then we really need to look at this from, from a different point of view. Put on a different pair of glasses and see what this looks like. And I really think we need to focus on educating people. And what I mean by that is not just educating um, the addicts. I think that's a portion of it. Um, but educating the entire community. Um, grandparents, parents, children, everything. And you really need to start and focus on a portion of the community that hasn't tried heroin yet or fentanyl and and that that group right now is your early high school kids your junior high your elementary kids and it's a shame that we have to have this talk in an elementary school level but i think it needs to take place and i really think that if we drive home the education part of this what it does to the drug business model is you're really focusing on the demand portion of this problem because with demand there's supply Without demand, there's no supply. Your supply dries up. Why would you send drugs to Akron, Ohio, 
if nobody's taking heroin. You're going to send it somewhere else. Absolutely. If it works across the entire United States, why would you send it to the United States? I'm a, if I'm a drug trafficker and I'm a cartel, I'm going to send it somewhere else, somewhere else on the planet where I can still make my money. Because to me, even though it's poison, I'm still got a business model that I'm trying to run. So I think really we need to focus on the demand aspect of this a lot. I really do. Makes a lot of sense. Well, Captain, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. I, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed this a lot. Thank you. Okay. We've been visiting today with Captain Michael Shearer of the Akron Police Department in the Narcotics Division. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. And thank you for joining us for this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.